So welcome to the Institute for Government. I'm Jill Rutter. I'm Programme Director overseeing our work on Brexit. And what we're going to try to do in the next hour and a quarter is to really establish everything we need to know to all be expert on the intricacies around the European Court of Justice, why it's such a red line for the EU, what possible, uh, possible alternatives might there be to the ECJ, which might open up some areas for compromise. Because I think the thing that emerged very clearly from last week's round of Brexit negotiations is that this really is an issue that matters. We have a really distinguished panel of distinguished lawyers, and I know we've got some very distinguished lawyers as well in the audience, but we are trying to go have a discussion that non-lawyers can understand. I am going to be the standard bearer for non-lawyers here, so when I don't understand what you're saying, I will intervene to say, could you just make that clear, people who haven't got triple degrees in law. Uh, I'm just going to introduce our panel, and then we'll set off. On my far left is uh, Raphael Hogarth. Raphael is a research associate at the Institute for Government. Uh, when he's not working at the Institute for Government, he writes leaders on the Times. So when you see a particularly good leader in the Times, that's because Raphael's written it, but obviously doesn't get a byline for that. Uh, and then to my left, have Professor Catherine Barnard. Catherine is Professor of European Law at the University of Cambridge and has managed to survive coming here by train from Cambridge, harder than you think, and is a senior fellow at UK and a Changing Europe. And you know, we've done, done quite a lot of work at IFG events with uh, UK and a Changing Europe. So it's very pleased to have Catherine here. And then to my immediate right is Dr. Holger Hestermeyer, who's shell reader in International Dispute Resolution, an issue about which we'll hear a lot more, at King's College London, and a former referendaire at the European Court of Justice. And then on my far right and representing an allied but perhaps rival institution. Michael James Clifton is chef de cabinet to the president of the Court of Justice of the European Free Trade Association, the so-called EFTA Court, of which we're hearing more and more as a possible, uh, possible way through these things. So what's going to happen is Raphael's going to set out to just try and frame some of the issues for the first sort of eight to ten minutes. Then each of our panellists is going to give a contribution from their perspective, and then we're going to open it up for all your... Questions. This is a thing where there is no such thing as a really stupid question on that. Uh, if you've got a really stupid question, it's probably as of nothing compared to the questions that officials are being asked by their ministers as we speak. So we go, and civil servants, please remember this is all live streamed, so we cannot edit out anything you say. So be very careful when framing your questions. Anyway, without further ado, Raphael. Morning, uh, afternoon even. Uh, I'm incredibly pleased to see so many people here today uh, to discuss this aspect of Brexit, which, is, uh, which I think is fascinating, dizzyingly complicated, and also politically combustible, so all the best bits of Brexit. Uh, I'm going to kick off by setting out what dispute resolution is, uh, why it matters for Brexit, what the two sides have said about it so far, uh, and what the kind of main high-level options are for the UK and the EU going forward for a dispute uh, resolution mechanism. Uh, we started looking at the ECJ and dispute resolution in general here at the Institute around February, shortly after the Prime Minister's Lancaster House speech. Uh, in that speech, she said, we will take back control of our laws and bring an end to the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice in Britain. Leaving the EU will mean that our laws will be made in Westminster, Edinburgh, Cardiff and Belfast, and those laws will be interpreted by judges not in Luxembourg, but in courts across this country. And that's a commitment that the Prime Minister and numerous members of her cabinet have repeated plenty of times since. But it sounds rather simpler than it is. 
And we released a paper a few weeks ago entitled Brexit and the European Court of Justice, which set out how we thought Parliament should handle the ECJ in the so-called Great Repeal Bill, now retitled the European Union Withdrawal Bill. Uh, and in that paper, we said, for instance, that we thought Parliament should uh, instruct the British courts to have regard to future ECJ judgments where appropriate in order to give some political cover to the judiciary and maintain legal certainty. And we were pleased to see that uh, the bill did something along those lines, at least as the government has put it forward. But we also warned that the role of the ECJ wouldn't be settled by legislators at home. And it'll be a live issue in negotiations too. And one of the reasons for that is its role in dispute resolution, which is sort of what I'm going to talk about today. Um, there will be disputes between the UK and the EU after Brexit. There'll be disputes about what our new treaty or treaties mean and about whether they've been properly implemented by one side or the other. Uh, there'll be disputes over the withdrawal agreement. So, for instance, if a British pensioner living in the Costa del Sol doesn't believe they're getting the social security payouts from the Spanish government that they were guaranteed by the deal, or the EU doesn't think that we're paying up under the financial settlement, as we said we would, uh, or we're violating some provisions of uh, EU law-related EU law provisions of the transition arrangements. And if there's a trade deal, a future partnership deal, there could be disputes over that too, over uh, what each side is doing with its regulations or whether we're imp implementing or the uh, EU member states are implementing really any aspect of cooperation set out under that deal. So given that, why is it such an important issue to think about now how all these disputes will be resolved? Three reasons. Firstly, treaties need to be enforced somehow. Uh, treaties are supposed to deliver benefits to businesses and citizens, to make things better for people than if the treaties were not there in the first place. Uh, but if everyone goes around breaking the rules, then the treaties won't do that. And in fact, when it comes to trade agreements, projections of the economic benefits normally assume 100% compliance. You get a bit closer to that with a dispute resolution mechanism. So if someone breaks the rules, there's a way of dealing with it, and they're deterred from breaking the rules in the first place. Secondly, there's a lot to lose for citizens and businesses. Uh, at the moment, it's the EU institutions that make sure everyone plays by the rules, uh, keeping their regulations in step and granting businesses and market, access to markets and all that kind of thing. Uh, and way before you even get to the involvement of the EU institutions, people have lots of rights under EU law that are enforceable in British courts or the courts of other member states, thanks to the doctrines of supremacy and direct effect. So it's a very robust system of enforcement that citizens and businesses have become accustomed to. Thirdly, this is, at least in my estimation, the biggest barrier to a deal. The two sides are separated by a chasm on dispute resolution, particularly over how the withdrawal agreement is going to be enforced and the role of the ECJ in that. So I want to just look a little bit about what they've said so far on this front. First of all, what has the UK said? Uh, in its Brexit white paper, the UK government acknowledged there would be a dispute resolution mechanism and it would be a matter for the negotiation. It also set out some criteria for that mechanism. Uh, any mechanism should respect UK sovereignty, protect the role of our courts, and maximise legal certainty. Uh, we've had a bit more detail since, but not very much. We know the ECJ could have some role possibly during the transition, but not after. Uh, we know there'll be no room for any direct effect of any EU law in the UK. Uh, and David Davis has, in media appearances, mentioned something about an arbitration arrangement sitting above uh, our uh, Brexit deal with the UK, with, with the EU, but he's not said very much about that. What about the EU? Its objectives are a little different. It wants to preserve the autonomy of the EU legal order, and that's something I hope 
uh, Catherine will talk a little bit more about later. Uh, it wants inf effective enforcement of the treaty, or the treaties, and it has strict rules about how any dispute resolution mechanism that is not the ECJ must treat ECJ case law. Uh, it's also set out some really quite detailed institutional proposals about uh, the exit deal. Uh, the ECJ and the Commission uh, are to deal with any bits of the withdrawal agreement that relate to EU law, uh, and for any other bits, it's to be dealt with by a joint committee, probably of senior ministers and diplomats in the first instance, uh, and then passed on to the ECJ if there's no resolution to be found over that dispute through negotiation. So compare and contrast. We say this is up for negotiation. The EU says otherwise. We, see, we say the ECJ can have no role. The EU says otherwise. We say there can be no direct effect. And the implication of the EU's position is very much that there must be direct effect. Uh, so let's take a step back and look at the sort of main models for dispute resolution. Dispute resolutions are often divided up into three categories, judicial, quasi-judicial, and political. Those categories are imperfect and they're not mutually exclusive. You can use one for some types of resolution and, some, and, and one for another. You can also layer them on top of each other, but they're helpful in kind of framing the, uh, the basic problem. So a judicial solution is, is something like the ECJ. It's a legal system where disputes are resolved by lawyers. Cases are decided by standing judges who are salaried out of a court budget and work in its building. Uh, there's maybe a system of precedent they use to make their decisions. It's all very institutionalized and formal. A quasi-judicial solution, as the name suggests, is like a court, but it's not a court. So disputes are still resolved by lawyers, but they make their arguments not to standing judges, but to maybe a panel of adjudicators or arbitrators composed ad hoc for each dispute, who then disband afterwards. And that mechanism often exists as a set of rules on paper rather than as an institution in space. It may be less transparent than a court, it may be less consistent in its reasoning than a court, because it's impermanent by nature. And then there are political mechanisms, and that is a totally different ballgame. Disputes here are resolved not by lawyers, but by politicians and diplomats and officials between themselves. Normally there's some kind of joint committee that meets regularly to hash out any issues, and if there's no agreement through negotiation, they just keep on going. And here's another three-way decision for us to make. Uh, there are kind of three broad approaches available. Something old, we could just dock to an institution that already exists, like uh, the ECJ or the EFTACOR, or for some trade matters, maybe the WTO dispute settlement mechanism, uh, and ask that institution to adjudicate uh, over parts of our treaties for us. Something borrowed, we could build a new system, but copy to the letter, or almost to the letter, a system that already exists, like the ECJ, like the EFTA court, like the WTO system, or maybe like one of the many dispute settlement procedures that already exist in trade agreements. Uh, or something new. The UK said in its white paper that we needn't be constrained by precedent uh, in the way we approach dispute resolution, so we could just innovate and build something com new completely. So something old, something borrowed, something new, and to complete it, something to make you blue. Suppose we did innovate. Suppose we attempted to build a new court or a new arbitration system from scratch with a, its own peculiar UK-EU rules to work for the peculiar UK-EU case. Here are 10 questions we would have to answer about it. My original list had 17 questions, but I couldn't fit them all on the slide, so this is my top 10. Uh, one, is this an institution with its own resources, with a budget and a building that exists in space, or does it only exist as a set of rules on paper? Two, who is responsible for surveillance, for looking out for breaches of the rules in the first place in the way that the European Commission does now? 
Three, can national courts refer cases to the mechanism? And if so, in what circumstances? Four, who has standing before it? That is, who can bring cases, initiate disputes in the first place? Is that just states, or can individuals and businesses do it too? What remedies can it hand down? Can the adjudicators award damages, or do they make recommendations? Can they fine parties or authorise retaliatory measures if their recommendations aren't followed? Six, who decides what judges or arbitrators sit on the body and who sits in what cases? Seven, direct effect and supremacy. Are their rulings enforceable in UK courts, even if they conflict with UK law? Can cases be brought and heard in secret, which is often easier for parties, or does it all have to be transparent, which is often thought to be better for the rule of law? Relatedly, do the adjudicators work on a system of judicial precedent or not? And is there an appeals process? And if so, how does it work? These are the kinds of institutional design questions you have to start asking once you get into innovation. And it might well be a good idea to do that, but it's not simple. And for a sort of illustrative guide to how not simple it is, uh, here is a sort of dispute resolution mega matrix uh, that is going to be in an even bigger form than this in a forthcoming Institute for Government paper, which sort of sets out uh, the different technical specifications of different possible dispute resolution mechanisms. So there are lots more questions to answer, uh, some of which I hope we'll get onto later in the discussion. Uh, but for now, I'd just say please look out for forthcoming IFG work on this. Uh, and with that, I'll hand over to our very distinguished panel. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Raphael. Well designed to set out in uh, as lay terms as possible what some of the issues are. I'm now going to turn to Catherine. Um, and what I think would be really helpful, Catherine, is just to sort of understand where the EU is coming from on all of this. There was quite an interesting report in the Telegraph yesterday which said that the uh, UK had proposed the, oh, well, we can't agree, let's have a Canadian settle all this for us, uh, on the grounds, you know, when in need, call in the Canadians. Uh, and the EU was inflexible because it was sort of insisting on the ECJ. So where does the EU's position on the ECJ come from? Catherine. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you very much for inviting me here. Um, I'm afraid I'm going to talk law and talk dirty mm. about law, and so it means technical law. Mm. I have done a very short note, which I'm told will go up on the website for those lawyers in the room who would mm. like to see the actual t content of the text as opposed to my uh, summary of the text. So I've been asked to talk specifically about um, two uh, issues. One, um, the legal problems uh, facing any attempt to set up an alternative body of the kind that Raphael was talking about. And secondly, um, the specific argument that if we want to stay in, for example, Euratom or the European Medicines Agency, we will be bound by the jurisdiction of the Court of Justice. Um, now, of course, I'm not going to get into the politics. We know what the red line is over the Court of Justice. Um, so then the question is, starting my first point, what is, what might the alternatives be? Or more specifically, what might be the problems in respect of those alternatives as seen from the perspective of the Court of Justice? So we've heard that there will be at least three contexts in which there will need to be some sort of adjudicatory body. I use that in the most neutral sense possible. One, to deal with disputes which are currently pending before the um, ECJ or 
facts arose before Brexit Day, but the case only got to the court uh, post, even the British courts post Brexit Day. Secondly, um, a body to uh, adjudicate on the enforcement and interpretation of the withdrawal agreement, that's the Article 50 agreement. And then thirdly, um, the, a body to adjudicate on the future deal. Now, at the moment, we know that the uh, information coming from the EU side is concentrated on the Article 50 withdrawal agreement because at the moment the EU Commission has only got the mandate to be negotiating Phase 1 issues and Phase 1 issues are about the withdrawal, not about the transition or about the future deal. So everything that the EU has said at the moment is about the Article 50 with the withdrawal agreement. And I think quite importantly, uh, the European Union uh, Council, the EU Council has said the withdrawal agreement should include appropriate dispute resolution uh, and enforcement mechanisms. And then it goes on to say, with duly circumscribed institutional arrangements, allowing for the adoption of measures necessary to deal with situations not foreseen in the agreement, this should be done bearing in mind the EU's interests to effectively protect its autonomy and its legal order, including the role of the Court of Justice. Now, these words should not be taken lightly by lawyers because um, this is something that the Court of Justice has become extremely fixed upon, the need to preserve the autonomy of EU law and particularly the, in particular the autonomy of the Court of Justice. Now, one of the earliest examples we saw of this fixation on the question of autonomy is in Opinion 1 of 91, which was an opinion about the um, uh, enforcement mechanism which was going to be set up under the EEA agreement. Now, the original idea under the original EEA agreement, just to remind you, the EEA agreement is a European Economic Area Agreement. That's the one that Norway's in. It's the one that we're going to hear about more about later on. But in respect to the original EEA agreement, the plan was that there would be a court which would have five judges from the Court of Justice and three judges from um, the EEA states. And so it would be a hybrid body. Now, just think, we've already heard that there's some suggestion that going forward we could have some sort of mechanism based on three Supreme Court justices from the UK and three from the European Court of Justice. Don't hold your breath, because the Court of Justice, in opinion one of 91, so this was looking at this setup um, in a sophisticated opinion, which I will do injustice to now, basically said, we can't do this because it interferes with the autonomy of EU law. Now, there were various reasons why the um, Court of Justice complained about um, the proposed setup. One of them was that the, uh, and forgive, I'm going to be technical here for a moment, one of the problems was that the Court of Justice complained that the EEA court, this is this hybrid body as then proposed, could be called upon to interpret the expression contracting party. And contracting party at that stage could mean the EU, the EU and the member states and the member states. Now all of that, that decision as to who would be the appropriate defendant in the case would be a matter for the EEA court. And that, said the Court of Justice, 
infringed upon the autonomy of the EU legal order. That shouldn't be something done by the EEA court, it should be something done by the Court of Justice. They were also concerned that the five Court of Justice judges would be conflicted because they were interpreting a different type of treaty against a backcloth of different imperatives. The imperatives of the EU is market integration and eventually creating some sort of um, political union. The imperatives behind the EEA agreement were much less ambitious. It was basically a free trade agreement with knobs on. And they were concerned, those are my words, not the court, but, but, they, but they were concerned that the, the judges, the, the um, five from the Court of Justice would be conflicted. To give you one other example of this, um, this concern about the autonomy and effectiveness of EU law and how any external body might impinge upon that, you'll recall in opinion 2 of 13, that was the opinion that the Court of Justice gave on the draft accession agreement by the EU to the European, Court, uh, European Convention on Human Rights. The Court of Justice was deeply concerned about the powers that would be given to the Court of Human Rights. Specifically, it's a long and complex judgment, but specifically, they were very concerned that under the um, European Convention, there is a protocol which allows national courts to make what we would term references to the Court mm -hmm. of Human Rights. Now, that procedure is very similar to the procedure under Article 267 of the treaty, which allows national courts to make references to the Court of Justice. And the Court of Justice was very concerned that this mechanism, this mechanism, new mechanism um, under um, the European Convention, would interfere with the autonomy and effectiveness of the preliminary ruling process under Article 267. Now, I realise this is not laugh-a-minute stuff. I'm sorry to be so technical. But what I am trying to get you to see is that this stuff is difficult. It's something that the Court of Justice is deeply preoccupied by. And I can give you further examples. So having a snap, don't worry, we can set up some new court that will sort out all these problems, is by no means straightforward. The second point I was asked to talk about was the argument that um, if we want to still have some access to these uh, bodies that um, some people have only just discovered have existed, but actually pay a fundamental role in um, our daily lives, even though we often don't recognise them, that the Court of Justice has got to have its say. And I was just going to refer to three briefly. First, the Euratom Treaty. Euratom Treaty um, is actually clear Article 106A of the Euratom Treaty says it cross-refers to a number of the provisions on the, in the TEU and the TFEU. The TEU is the Treaty on European mm. Union. The TFEU is the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union. Those are the two main pillars of EU law. And included in the list, there's a long list, but there is uh, reference to Articles 246 to 270. And buried in that list are the key provisions on references to the Court of Justice under 267 and also judicial review under Article 263. So it's quite clear that the Euratom Treaty makes a direct reference to the institutions and bodies of the EU, in particular the Court of Justice. 
Furthermore, there's another provision in the Euratom Treaty, um, Article 144, which expressly says the Court of Justice shall have unlimited jurisdiction in certain circumstances which are set, set out there. So that's Euratom. What about the agencies? Now, as you know, there are about 40 EU agencies out there doing a variety of um, important daily work. Article 263 of the TFEU, which is the provision on judicial review of acts of the institution, expressly refers to the fact that the Court of Justice has got jurisdiction over decisions taken by the agencies which are intended to produce legal effects vis-a-vis -vis third parties. So if the, in, the agency has taken a decision which has legal effect on me, um, then I can um, seek judicial review of that decision before the Court of Justice. Furthermore, both in respect of the European Medicines Agency and the Community Plant Variety Office, Medicines Agency we've heard a lot about recent, recently. Medicines Agency, just to remind you, if you've got marketing authorization under the centralized procedure from the European Medicines Agency, it means that you can um, market your drug across um, all, at the moment, 31 states, the EU states plus the three EEA states. Now, that uh, legislation which set up the Medicines Agency makes it absolutely clear that, for example, the contractual liability of the agency is covered by the Court of Justice, that's Article 72, and you have seen similar provisions on liability too in respect to the Community Plant Variety Office. So to conclude, these agencies, of which I have just selected two, are firmly bedded in the institutional structure and dynamics of the European Union. And of course, why wouldn't they be? They are institutions, agencies of the European Union, and they were set up with the EU system, system in mind. Thank you very much. Thank you, Catherine. So just a... There's a simple bottom line. If we wanted to do a sort of slightly pick and mix variation of take some of these things, but without ECJ, you'd basically be saying, hello, EU, you need to amend the fundamental treaties of the European Union to take out the references to the ECJ or to uh, amend them. Absolutely, which would be under the um, lengthy amend uh, amendment procedure, which would require a referenda in a number of countries. I mean, this is a gargantuan exercise. Okay, very helpful. Thank you. Um, Rolling forward, um, Holger, Raphael sent out some sort of options around some of the choices that the UK and perhaps the EU, if they want to play ball on this, would have about designing dispute resolutions. So what do you think they should be focusing on and how should they weigh those, uh, those possibilities? Thank you very much. Thank you very much for the invitation. So I think the first thing is this points in the right direction. There's been a lot of talk in the press and the public about different models and it's always... ECJ versus EFTA versus WTO versus maybe International Court of Justice. Mm. And I think this way that obscures the real issue of what dispute settlement is about and how dispute mm. resolution functions. It's more uh, a collection of just labels and people generally don't understand what those labels mean. So I think it's important to look behind these labels, move beyond that, which allows us to be pragmatic, to look at the function, to look at UK interests, to identify UK interests properly, to say, what do we actually want? What is good for us? So, for example, if we decide to be in the intellectual property office, if that were even possible, and uh, it allows you to file trademarks all over the EU, valid in every country, 
Of course, if you want to attack the validity of the trademark, you have to do that centralized. And uh, that would mean the European Court of Justice. So I would propose to look at the functionalities, the bits that make up dispute resolution, and think about those in more depth. And you'll see that in the basis, basic objectives we've heard about so far, there's actually a fundamental tension. Uh, the objectives we've heard is that, of course, <coughs> we're afraid about loss of sovereignty. We want to control uh, and have control of the laws and protect UK courts. At the same time, we also want an agreement enforced. And we want legal certainty, which is usually provided by a centralized court interpreting the agreement. Uh, we've heard already from Raphael why we have dispute settlement. There's a, a nice little line in the dispute settlement understanding of the WTO on purposes of dispute settlement, which is helpful. It states dispute settlement is there to provide security and predictability, preserve the rights and obligations, and clarify existing provisions. Here again, you see already a problem. If it clarifies existing provisions, that means there's a court that interprets the law, which then parties in the future will take as binding interpretations, which of course takes away sovereignty. We have to decide whether we want that or not, and to what extent we want it. And then, of course, the other fundamental purpose of dispute resolution is it resolves the dispute between the parties to the agreement. So to break this down and make this more understandable, let's just think about a very basic example. Let's say you have a UK family business uh, producing homemade crumpets. And let's say uh, the person having an innovative idea found in Brazil some innovative type of yeast and uses that type of yeast and turns out fantastic best crumpets ever. And the person wants to export those crumpets and is successful with this export. But then an EU country, let's just say Hungary, for, for having one identified, says, well, we actually think this yeast is unhealthy. You can see these disputes arise. You can see that an UK-EU agreement will very likely contain provisions on health measures that can be taken in trade. And you can see how the interpretation of those measures will create problems. There is no way an agreement can provide a solution, a pre-made solution for all of these cases. So there needs to be some mechanism to resolve these disputes. And I will just analyze three of the aspects in institutional design that we have to face or we have to think about to have an effective solution for the UK and to decide actually what is an effective solution for the UK. The first issue would be standing, which means who can actually go to this dispute resolution mechanism. Currently, EU law has direct effect, which means national courts have to apply it, and supremacy, which means if there's a national health law in this case, which contradicts EU law, they have to disapply it. Then they have, if they have a question, they have to refer that question to the European Court of Justice, at least in the last instance, that's Article 267, which rules on that interpretation. So you have the national court, which enforces the deal. And for our trumpet business, it means if Hungary has imposed restrictions, you can get rid of them in a Hungarian court, through a Hungarian court ruling. We move out of the EU, that is gone, because UK courts and also European courts generally do not apply 
international law imports. It has mm. to be a transposed mm. international law. It's called dualism. It's the leading doctrine mm. for how treaties work in the international system. So that will be gone. Then the question is, how do you get to the international mechanism? Generally, international mechanisms, international courts, will have standing for states, which means our trumpet producer would have to lobby the UK to bring a case against Hungary. If you look at how this works in the WTO, where only states have standing to sue, that means only big companies, only enormous economic interests will be worth it. For already financial reasons, the UK will say, how much is your business worth? You export what? £100,000 a year, quite frankly. We don't spend money on that. And that's a fair consideration. So that business would not have access to the mechanism, would have to lobby the government. Second option, you give an institution, an oversight institution over the agreement, standing to bring an infringement action. That eliminates, for example, political considerations. Let's say <coughs> the UK is also in important negotiations mm. with Hungary mm. about buying some military equipment. And it would say, well, yeah, the economic interest mm. is there, but quite frankly, we don't want to destroy those sensitive negotiations, mm. so we won't bring a case. That is gone if you say there's an oversight mechanism which can sue. In the EU, that's mm. the Commission. In EFTA, that's the Surveillance Authority. That authority has less of the political restraint mm can bring infringement actions, but the problem is still there. You need to lobby them. And if you're just a small business, you might be unable to do so. Third option, you give individuals standing to sue. That means you will see lots of actions. That also means, and this goes to the sovereignty idea in the negotiations, that means the courts get lots of opportunities to interpret the agreements, and states lose control over when the agreements are interpreted. There is no perfect formula. We have to decide which trade-off between this loss of sovereignty and effective enforcement for business we want. That is standing. Second issue, composition of the court. Now, first question we face is, should it be a court or an ad hoc mechanism of arbitrators? It's an ad hoc mechanism, usually. For the next case, you might have three other arbitrators. They will feel less bound by previous decisions because they didn't make them. They are not part of really the same institution. They're just ad hoc there for this case. So you'll have less of a precedential effect. If you had set up a court, courts follow precedent. And there I think it's important to realize whether there is a doctrine of precedent or not is absolutely irrelevant. I come from a civil law jurisdiction, Germany, which does not have a rule of precedence. I've studied law in the US, which does have a rule of precedent. It's utterly the same. In practice, there's no difference. Lower courts follow higher courts, whether there's precedent as a doctrine or not. The way you get around this is by saying, we don't have a court. We have an ad hoc mechanism. For every case, three new people. We tell them you're not bound, and then we'll have three other people. That, of course, has the disadvantage that when industry looks at the agreement and says, what does this mean? And someone says, well, there's been a case about it. They will say, well, there's also another case which goes the other way. So, so we still don't know what it means. If you have a court, on the other hand, it gives you the security that says the court has ruled on this. The next time they are likely to follow the same rule. But then 
that court becomes the factual arbiter of the agreement and develops the agreement for the future. I'm not saying I have a perfect solution. I'm just saying there are options, and we have to choose which one we want. And it's important to realize each option has advantages and disadvantages. And we cannot just say, oh, look, this is a horrible red line. We should instead say, when is it to our disadvantage and when is it not? That's the composition. Of course, the composition then goes into details of which nationals, how many nationals. I'll leave that aside for a moment. Uh, that's more very technical, and probably we can discuss that later on. Then, a final issue, and again, an important issue, remedies. What can the court actually do? What sentences can the court actually provide, and how will that help, in our case, our crumpet producer? Generally, international courts, as the most fundamental power, will give a declaration. They will say, Hungary has not interpreted the agreement properly. This is the correct interpretation of the treaty. So you know Hungary has violated the agreement. What if Hungary says, yes, that's great, but we won't change our interpretation? Well, the court, if it can only issue declaratory judgments, cannot do anything. And that's as far as you get, if that's the only power of the court. Now, you could, of course, also say that you allow a country to take trade sanctions. That's what is done in the WTO. So you would bring a case. There would at first be a declaration in our crumpet case. Hungary has violated the UK-EU trade agreement. Then you'd bring a second case and say, that has hurt UK industry to the tune of 200,000 pounds. We now want to sanction that country for 200,000 pounds in another area. And then you'd say, we sanction Hungarian soup by raising tariffs to such an extent that it amounts to 200,000 pounds. What will our crumpet producer say? That doesn't help me. I didn't want to make soup more expensive in the UK. <laughs> I wanted to get my crumpets to the market in Hungary. But this is how the WTO works. The idea being that now Hungary has an incentive to change the rule and will be under pressure from the soup producers which lose, lose UK business. If, they, if the government is willing to not change the rules, well, so be it. They take the trade sanction. However, the incentive is there and the obligation is there to change their laws. Now, you could go a step further and say the court is also empowered to award damages and say, for example, our crumpet producer over three years has not sold any crumpets. That was the amount of crumpets they sold before. This is the amount of damages they deserve. These models exist. The WTO did not do that because this goes quite far in terms of limiting the sovereignty of the country. It's financial. It's always very sensitive. And in particular, if it's a state-state case, why should the UK, why, why should Hungary, well, Hungary should pay because it's a Hungarian measure, but it's not always clear how this measure works and whether there really should be liability for the state. And then the state doesn't want to set up a system which makes it liable to pay money. So damages are usually uh, rather rare in an international system. Investment law has them. And finally, quashing the national decision. 
That is entirely unusual. Uh, that is the EU system. It requires supremacy. And I think we, it's very unlikely that we'll go there. So we can very likely discard that. However, there are also all sorts of interesting mechanisms, I wanted to say, to be creative. In NAFTA, there is a mechanism which the US now wants to get rid of where an international body interprets national law. So you can get creative. It's just a matter of identifying what is in our interest, what is in the interest of industry, what is in the interest of citizens, and to what extent do we want to protect sovereignty. Uh, the other thing to bear in mind there is the agreement itself limits sovereignty. If we sign an agreement that has obligations, is enforcing those obligations, really limiting our sovereignty, and then the UK has traditionally a good track record in complying with international law. Why do we want to not have a court system which allows us to keep the other side to the agreement for the rare cases in which we ourselves do not abide by the agreement? As of course always the UK's view is that it's much more compliant, which is why we supported big fines for non-compliant. But if it is, of EU. course, then, yeah. then having a strong court system yeah. is in our interest. And I would propose to look at the details of dispute yeah. resolution that way rather than saying ECJ versus WTO because I think this will help us uh, much more in getting the system right. Uh, as a last word, where, as in, the, in the words of Yogi Berra, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, so this Yogi is Berra, not where Yogi we are at the moment. Yeah. If we don't identify what aspects mm -hmm. of dispute resolution there are, we really have no information. All we can say is, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. We need to know where we're going to be effective when we come to that fork in the road. Thank you, Holger. Extremely useful sort of quick surveillance of some of the options. Of course, we, one of the things we don't have is very much time, because we're hoping to do both the withdrawal agreement and the new agreement within the next 20 months which is why I think quite a lot of people are quite attractive to what we might describe as the Blue Peter option, which is we have one we prepared earlier. And the one we have prepared earlier that is not the ECJ is the EFTA court. We've heard a bit about that from Catherine. Uh, so I'm delighted to have Michael James Clifton to just fill us in on what is the EFTA court and why might it be part of the solution. Thank, you very, thank you very much, Joe. Um, thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, first of all, I need to make clear that I'm speaking in a personal capacity and my comments cannot be attributed to the EFTA court. Now, the EFTA, states, <laughs> the EFTA states are the only major Western European countries to be outside of the EU. And in approaching the Brexit negotiations, their experiences provide valuable guidance as to what's achievable. And so this afternoon, I'm going to try and draw some of the lessons of history from their experiences as regards dispute settlement and apply them to the UK situation. I'll show that there are three potential options, in my view, for dispute settlement between the UK and the EU under either a transitional agreement or the uh, intended deep and special partnership. And these are the ECJ, the EFTA court, or a new institution. But before delving into that, I think it's helpful if I explain a little of the history leading up to the creation of the European Eco Economic Area, the EEA, and the EFTA Corps. So back in the 1970s, a series of bilateral free trade agreements 
were created between the then EEC and the EFTA states. And in 1984, I, I am going rather quickly through history, um, there was a meeting between the then seven EFTA states and the 12 EEC countries. Uh, and they had an idea that they would create a program to launch what they called the European Economic Space. Now, this became, thanks to Maggie Thatcher, the European Economic Area, because she wasn't very keen on the word space. Now, in 1989, the then president of the European Commission, Jacques Delors, proposed a new, more structured partnership with common decision-making and administrative institutions with the EFTA states. This is a really big offer, uh, but the Commission subsequently rode back, at least partially, on this offer, as various EFTA states saw the forthcoming EEA agreement as just a stepping stone to EU membership. Now, now we get up to the early 1990s, and in October 91, as the EEA negotiations were concluding, um, the European Commission decided to ask the ECJ for its opinion about the judicial mechanism planned in the EEA agreement, the EEA court, yeah. as, as has been discussed. Now, I, I'm not going to talk about this opinion in any detail whatsoever, uh, but uh, I would just highlight, as Catherine did, that its hybrid nature uh, meant that for the ECJ this was uh, incompatible with the autonomy of EU law. But what to do? Well, the negotiators needed to create a new supervisory and judicial structure in double-quick time. And they created uh, a two-pillar solution, which is the innovation of the EEA. And in simplified terms, essentially, if a matter arose in the EU regarding the EEA agreement, then the ECJ would address the problem. If the problem arose in the EFTA states, then the EFTA court would be competent. And there was a mechanism introduced to resolve problems if the two courts uh, reached some irreconcilable divergences, uh, but this has never been used, and in my view uh, is a, a lettre mort. Now, the ECJ approved of this uh, solution in Opinion 192, and to this day the two courts uh, have an excellent relationship. Now, it's at this point in time that Switzerland's uh, situation changed. So Switzerland is an EFTA state, but it didn't ratify the EEA agreement because it had a, a negative referendum. And so its relationship with the EC was left in the cold. The EEA agreement is the most advanced free trade agreement concluded with the European Union as it extends the single market to the EFTA states. It's far more advanced than any of the others. And so Switzerland, despite its negative referendum, sought to emulate the single market in a sectoral manner. But it lacks uh, the free moves of services and the free moves of capital. And critically for today, it also lacks a court. So what do the two dispute settlement mechanisms under Swiss bilaterals and the EEA agreement look like? Well, Switzerland has dispute resolution with the EU through negotiations in diplomatic committees. So Swiss enterprise, if they have a problem, need to petition their government. Icelanders, Liechtensteiners and Norwegians and Icelandic Liechtenstein and Norwegian companies can go to court. They can enforce their rights if they think they're being infringed. The EFTA court is completely independent of the ECJ and it's modelled, due to the double-quick time that the negotiators had, uh, it's modelled after a, a hypothetical version of the ECJ in 1994. But there are some significant differences. So each country has its own judge, but there are no advocates general. 
it's bound by pre-1992 ECJ case law and must take into account uh, relevant post-1992 ECJ case law. Remarkably, the EFTA court is the only court of general jurisdiction that the ECJ regularly cites, and there have been around 160 references to EFTA court jurisprudence. Now, some of the differences, again, the EFTA court has characterised its relationship with the national supreme courts of the EFTA states as being more partner-like than the EU's relation, sorry, than the ECJ's relationship with the courts of last resort of the EU member states. And th this uh, is seen in terms of some of the cases that it hears. So we have direct actions, we have infringement proceedings, and we have advisory opinion procedure, which is more or less like a preliminary reference procedure, except with the rather greater uh, difference, that when it, we get to the top courts, so if we get to the Icelandic Supreme Court, they're not obliged to make a reference to the EFTA court. They may do so. And this is a, a, quite a, a nuance uh, to the agreement. It's quite different. So the EFTA court may take its own path. It's not bound to ever closer union, and it maintains the essential EFTA values of sovereign liberal free trade. And it's a robust, mature, efficient, and respected institution whose working language is English. Now, what about the Swiss? Well, the Swiss, sorry, the, the EU is no longer happy with the diplomatic committee system that they've been using with Switzerland. And uh, so there's been no new substantive agreement concluded between Switzerland and the EU since 2008, really rather much to the Swiss dismay. So, for example, Switzerland has been unable to conclude an electricity agreement, which they'd begun negotiating with the EU back in 2007. And the EU has been extremely clear on this in its Council conclusions of 2008, 2010, 2012, 2014, and the 28th of February 2017. They've said to the Swiss, well, new market access agreements are only possible if you have a surveillance and court agreements here. So what's happened in the meantime? It's been rather a long time. Well, the Swiss, the Swiss first of all proposed to create a Swiss surveillance authority with jurisdiction uh, under the, the, this surveillance authority to a special chamber of the Swiss Federal Supreme Court. Rather unsurprisingly, from an EU perspective, this was rejected outright. The EU, though, made really quite a, a remarkable counterproposal that the, the Swiss they thought, could keep the uh, bilateral agreements with the EU, but these agreements could be docked uh, to the EFTA court. And so when a case would arise through uh, the Swiss bilateral agreements, the EFTA court would hear it, but there would be a Swiss judge sitting on the EFTA court. Now, this is particularly remarkable, because in this situation, the EFTA court would be a foreign court for the EU. They would have no judge. However, the, the Swiss government disagreed. It thought that it would accept the jurisdiction of the ECJ, but it contended that although it acknowledged that the ECJ would give binding judgments vis-a-vis -vis these bilateral agreements, the final resolution of the case would be uh, through bilateral diplomacy, as the question would go effectively from the diplomatic to the court, and then it would be returned, and then they'd take it into account or they'd do whatever diplomats do. Now, Unsurprisingly, after 17 rounds of negotiations on this particular idea, no significant progress has been made. 
And uh, on the 4th of May 2017, a group of influential Swiss parliamentarians have asked the Swiss government to change its approach. And the Swiss foreign minister, uh, Mr. Didier Bochhalter, has handed in his resignation, which is effective at the end of October. So, what lessons can be drawn from this history for the UK? Well, it's quite clear for the, for the UK. The ECJ remain, uh, remains a clear, and without a UK judge on it, a legitimate red light. And obviously, a purely UK system is unacceptable for the EU for the same reason. Likewise, uh, diplomatic resolution through diplomatic committees will clearly not be accepted by the EU. So what else is there? Arbitration, in my view, is uh, also more than doubtful. For, for example, let's be a little technical here, Article 111, Paragraph 4 of the EEA Agreement states that uh, no question of interpretation of, a prov of provisions of EEA law that are identical in substance to provisions of EEA, EU law may be dealt with in arbitration procedures. That's quite clear. So what then? What, what, what about a new institutions, a new court or tribunal? Well, in my view, a new bilateral tribunal is possible, but there are, there are clearly some potentially insurmountable difficulties. Firstly, uh, as Holger has highlighted, mm. there are problems of design. Secondly, uh, cherry-picking. If you have a bilateral court, suddenly the UK is now equal to 27 of its formerly co-equal partners. Thirdly, what will the ECJ think? And I think the uh, impending reference from Belgium regarding CETA from Wallonia uh, will be quite instructive on this. And fourthly, and I think this is often overlooked, but it's nevertheless rather important, new institutions take time to bed in and develop acceptance. So, in the alternative, what is there? Well, the UK could propose to make use of the good offices of the EFTA Surveillance Authority and the EFTA Court. And if the UK were to elect to be a party to the EFTA Surveillance Authority and the EFTA Court, it would need the agreement of Iceland, Liechtenstein and Norway. The UK would have a British judge on the EFTA Court bench, and indeed um, it has been suggested in one particular court, uh, corner that uh, the UK could perhaps have two judges in order to ensure an odd number of judges on the bench for which the ECJ itself actually forms precedent. Moreover, the rules which the EFTA Court applies, and I'm speaking technically here, Article 6 of the EEA Agreement and Article 3 of the Surveillance and Court Agreement, which deal with the role of ECJ case law, these provisions are the clear inspiration for Paragraph 43 of the Council's Negotiating Guidelines. And the EFTA Court, of course, already fulfills paragraph 44 of the negotiating guidelines, uh, which require uh, that uh, any such institution offer equivalent guarantees of independence and impartiality to the Court of Justice of the European Union. So in conclusion, the experience of the EFTA states has been, it's been a great advantage to have an own cause. A court provides a gateway to justice for companies and individuals that state-to-state -state arbitration cannot, as Holger has quite clearly explained. Now, wh whether the UK proposes to create a new tribunal is a matter for the government. But I think, from my personal perspective, uh, it would be well advised to seriously consider docking to the EFTA court for both the transitional agreement, potentially in the European, uh, uh, through the European Economic Agreement, 
and the sorts deepen special partnership. So can it do it without becoming an EEA member? Is that possible or an EFTA member? Well, the UK is already a contracting party to the EEA agreement and it has ratified it. But the way the agreement's designed is that you have two types of country. You have an EU country or you have an EFTA state. And so it can't really float around not being in one of those uh, so it has categories. To, it has to be in one of those categories yes. to do that. So we can't be a third contracting. Okay, brilliant. So uh, I'm sure there are loads and loads of questions. We haven't got huge amounts of time. Might run on slightly. So I'm going to take questions in clumps of three and ask questions to be brief and I will ask answers to be brief and not necessarily get everybody commenting on everything. So microphones, let's start here. Yes, tell us who you are, very quickly. Uh, Thomas Cole, Head of Policy at Open Britain. Uh, in the end of the day, this is basically a negotiation between two sides. One is very, very powerful, the one is less, so that's the EU and the UK. Mm. If it's a red line for the UK to, uh, to, to not have the ECJ, then of course it lose single market access. If single market access and the same benefits are really important, then ultimately you have to compromise on the ECJ. So what the panel say at the end of the day, if the UK puts its economic interests first, it will just have to compromise on ECJ membership. Not sure that's a question as opposed to just a comment. But anyway, yes, no, uh, let's go here, Alex. And um, uh, Stephen Green, question for yeah. Catherine, actually. Um, you talked a little bit about the European Court of Human Rights um, and the ECJ's argument in favour of its own supreme uh, authority, autonomy. The difference between the Court of Human Rights and the EFTA court is that there is no country that's a member of both, whereas in the case of the ECHR, all of the EU members are also members of the convention. So I'm interested in how they resolved that question because the ECHR court does exist and is presumably has authority in the EU. Okay, and third question back there, yeah. Thank you very much. Matthew Holhouse from MLEX News Agency. I just wondered if you could uh, the panel could clear up a, a sort of a technical question, which is that the, the British position based on the note on the withdrawal agreement is that cases can't go beyond the Supreme Court, that any arbitration mechanism would effectively be, a, I guess, a state-to-state -state one. Is that, is that compatible with the EFTA court, or, or would in, individuals uh, re, uh, be required to have sort of standing in, in the EFTA court if, if that's to work as, as an option, particularly on this, on this issue of, of citizens' rights, which is where the, the, the UK's focus seems to be at the moment? Thank you. Okay, let's take all those. Catherine, I think let's give you first, uh, first dibs at, uh, at, uh, at those. I just, st st Stephen, your question was delivered mm. uh, so quickly that I didn't... So you want to know, it, it, Court of Human Rights, uh, 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 all 28 mm. member states mm. are members of the Court mm. of Human Rights, uh, are members of the Convention. Mm. Uh, EFTA Court, um, then uh, the EEA states are in the EFTA, EU states yes, are yeah. parties through the EFTA agreement, the EEA agreement... If you're an EU member uh, or a citizen of an EU member, you look to the ECJ, you don't look to EFTA. Um, uh, the, the, it's binary, it's one or the yeah, other the, for, for anybody, yeah. whereas it's not binary in the case of the European Court of Human Rights. I don't understand um, how the division of labour works between the ECJ and the ECHR, um, oh, sorry, the, 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 yeah. the, the Court of Human nice. Rights, yeah. But presumably, there's a possible other model in that. 
Uh, yes, this is actually you touch on a really difficult question and one that the uh, draft accession agreement really struggled with uh, about what happens if there's a challenge before the Court of Human Rights about an issue which was caused by the EU, so the EU sanctions regime, for example, where the argument is it's, it's con contravened the European Con Convention on Human Rights. Who decides that? Should it be to the Court of Justice first and then to the Court of Human Rights? Draft accession agreement had come up with a, a model to deal with that. EU, the Court of Justice was very concerned about the fact that there is a way of circumventing uh, a reference to the Court of Justice on the invalidity of an EU rule. And so, yes, you're right, there is difficulty in a number of cases which involve the Court of Human Rights and the Court of Justice. Less acute here because, as Michael can explain better, but as he said earlier, that at the moment, if it's um, a, a, a French national is suffering because of a decision taken by... Uh, the Norwegian government, there is one route to go to, would go, so they would go to the Court of Justice, they would go to the FTA Court, and then, it, um, so it, there is, they can deal with that um, relatively straightforward, that, that situation has been envisaged. Mm -hmm. You can iron those sorts of things out in the, in the telling. On the point about um, access to the single market, here there's a real problem of terminology. Every state in the world has access to the single mm. market. What we're talking about is preferential um, participation in the single market. Um, and the, the EU's argument is simply, if you want preferential mm. participation, there are two ways of, of, of doing that. Um, one, you're an EU member state. Two, you're an EEA state. Or three, there is some sort of uh, greater or less free trade agreement um, which deals with that. The ECJ deals with EU states. The EEA system is dealt with through largely through the EFTA court. Um, free trade agreements with access have varying combinations of uh, dispute resolution mechanism. Um, but the, 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 the key point, what, um, if you go down the WTO sort of route, state-to-state -state route, We've heard the problems about individual access. The other thing that will be lost as a result of trying to get access to um, dispute resolution mechanisms is the informal dispute resolution mechanisms like Solvit, which only cost the um, cost of a, a stamp and a, or a, a telephone call to ring up and say, I've got a problem, and the Solvit mechanism funded through the Commission, intervenes. All of those informal mechanisms which are easier to resolve disputes will be um, lost. And I'll, um, I'll leave the after one to Michael. Yeah, would you like to pick up on the yes. position of, you know, after court citizens' rights? You know, do you so, see uh, the British as... with as taking that out, that we wouldn't regard that as compatible with EFTA supervision of citizens' rights? Well, uh, the, the way the EFTA court works is that you, you can have... Um, EFTA states bringing actions against the EFTA surveillance authority, or indeed you can have EFTA states bringing cases against other EFTA states, should they so wish. Uh, I can't say that I've ever seen a case where an EFTA state has brought a case against another EFTA state. But the primary way that it works is that you have, uh, you have in, a, in a domestic setting, you have a matter of uh, EEA law. And in, in your domestic uh, legal um, set up, so for example, I don't know, the Oslo uh, City Court, for example, they have a dispute and they don't know how to interpret a particular piece of uh, EEA law, then they go, well, we'll refer this case to the EFTA Court 
and they can go and answer this particular question. And then it comes back to the Oslo City Court, and then it bubbles up if the need arises through the domestic legal order. And similarly for um, companies, they have uh, rights to bring cases as well. So you, you could say, for example, in competition law, which is quite a large area in this field, or indeed in state aid, um, their companies can bring actions against the decision of the EFTA Surveillance Authority. So just like in the EU, where you might have I don't know, Google against the Commission, for example. But would the EFTA court really be up for, if we took the citizens' rights example, the UK does something that affects the rights of you know, people who are here under their previously acquired rights as EU citizens living here, want to bring their families in, we say, no, we're going to put a very high income threshold on that, something we've done to British citizens, um, much higher one for EU citizens, and then the Commission says you're violating the withdrawal agreement. Would the EFTA court want to be involved in that sort of overseeing that with the UK? Well, I mean, I think it, th this, is all, this particularly is a matter for the negotiations because I think there will be some transition mm. from leaving the ECJ mm. to going to whatever. Mm. And I, I think the Commission will have some doubts about pre-existing circumstances. Mm. But for subsequent examples, I mean, the EFTA court deals with employment issues. It deals with individuals' rights in any event. So this is nothing new. Okay, let's go to another round of questions. Yes, here and then here. Yeah. No? Sorry, Peter. Uh, yeah. Peter Unwin from the Whitehall and Industry Group. I'd like to talk about uh, surveillance, which I think both uh, Raphael and Michael James uh, referred to. Let's be optimistic and assume we solve the small problem you're talking about today of having a court arrangement. Mm -hmm. uh, any court is going to be pretty empty mm -hmm. if you haven't got policemen to bring cases to it. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, you know, we're signed up to European directives and the Commission police those. We leave those directives, but as part of a free trade agreement, we'll mm -hmm. have to sign up to some form of equivalence. Uh, who is going to be the equivalent of the Commission that enforces that equivalence? Okay, who wants to have a quick go on surveillance? Raphael, do you want to say something? Holger will probably be best placed to surveillance. Uh, <clears throat> well, the question is, would we want that? Uh, mm -hmm. in, it, it is possible to just not have that and leave it to individuals to bring cases if they're harmed, but that would require individual mm -hmm. access. But the Europeans accept that as part mm -hmm. of a free trade agreement? As part of a free trade agreement, absolutely they would, because, because a lot yeah. of free trade agreements do not have a surveillance authority that can bring cases. But I, I would say where you go is also a matter of the depth of the agreement. Uh, the deeper the integration, the more there will be need for an institution like that or indeed for, for a better integrated court system. The less integration, so if you make EU law applicable, you have autonomy, you need the ECJ. If you go very deep in terms of integration, you need a surveillance authority to, to see whether the agreement is complied with. If you say it's just the regular free trade agreement, lots of free trade agreements don't have a surveillance authority, the WTO doesn't have a surveillance authority. So, Michael James, who is the surveillance authority, the after surveillance authority? Is it big? Is it the size of the commission? Is it... Tiny? Is it just a few bunch of people sitting in uh, Reykjavik, or who is it? Well, well they're, they're based in Brussels, and uh, the EFTA Surveillance Authority is a much smaller um, counterpart to the European Commission. So they do the same monitoring functions that the European Commission does mm. inside the EU. Um, there are significantly fewer personnel. Uh, each country has what's called a college member. It's the equivalent of a, a commissioner. And um, yeah, you, can, you can bring a, case, a complaint to the EFTA Surveillance Authority if you think your rights are being infringed in much the same way as the Commission. 
Okay, if anyone's in the um, overspill room and would like to ask a question, you need to come in here and gesture, particularly if there are any women in the overspill room who'd like to ask some questions. Anyway, meanwhile, let's go back there. My name is Pietro Denaro, and I'm a registered UPL lawyer in, in London. I wanted to ask you a question about a slightly different issue, which also relates to disputes, uh, which, uh, for instance, in the financial sector, which is very relevant for the, for the economy of the UK, um, in many uh, contracts there are uh, English jurisdiction clauses. And uh, I wanted to ask you whether you think that, the, uh, and of course this relates to another aspect of disputes, but which is also relevant. I wanted to ask you whether you think also that uh, the, what Brexit will uh, cause some uh, change uh, towards the relevance, let's say, because this is not like something official. I mean, the, the relevance of the, of the jurisdiction of, of English court is something which is not like uh, ruled by EU law or you don't find it <laughs> written anywhere. But still, it is a, a, a fact. And I want to, th to ask you, where do you, you think, yep. or some, do you think okay. that there could be some change on it? Got that. Um, Catherine, do you have a review on that? Um, the, if you're talking about the Rome 1... Uh, regulation uh, and those sorts of issues. Um, European, Euro European Union Withdrawal Bill will, of course, give effect to all EU regulations, international law. But the problem is the asymmetry behind it, because at the moment it's all very well for English courts to say that we will recognise foreign judgments. But the question, uh, sorry, forgive me, uh, that's Brussels, it's a foreign um, choice of law clause. But what happens about other states recognising uh, the choice of law um, of the United Kingdom? It's the same with the Brussels 1 regulation about the enforcement of judgments. And the, the bigger problem, I think, is particularly in respect of Brussels 1 and the enforcement of judgments. Because at the moment, um, I think there is a tiny percentage, 3 5% of foreign judgments that need to be for enforced in the UK. It's a much bigger issue about, I think, 90% of judgments involving a foreign party that need to be enforced in other member states. And at the moment, there is an asymmetry. And the asymmetry is we can say we'll do it as much as we like. But if 90% of the judgments need to be enforced in Germany, France, Italy big problem because they won't be obliged to because they're no longer are we a member state and therefore no longer are we a party of the Brussels, to the Brussels one regulation. It seems to me for legal services it's imperative that there be something sorted out on this matter because it will have a devastating effect on the um, British legal services market. Okay, let's go to another round of questions. Yes. Um, Robert Morland, I'm a former member Quick. of the European Parliament. Um, my tempted question is, are we up a gum tree? But my real question, you can answer that, but my real question is, I've certainly heard, indeed, from meetings I've been at the House of Commons, a little bit trickling out more as to whether we should look at the European area as actually something we should go into. And I know there are red lines there on mobility of labour um, and, indeed, accepting decisions. But would that be a much easier solution in terms of what we're talking about here? I think that's probably going slightly beyond the brief of today's meeting. Uh, let's go. And, yeah, Robert. Robert is an associate here at the IFG. Could you take half a step backwards and just remind us why the ECJ is so objectionable to the UK government? Is it just uh, rhetoric about sovereignty? Or is it a reasoned objection because it's seen as a sort of supra super-federalizing institution. And has the ECJ, in response, I assume, to similar objections from other member states, shows any sign recently 
of trimming in terms of its case law or its judgments. Okay, and then George. Uh, uh, George Perrett of uh, Moncton Chambers. Uh, the, the question I was going to ask is, uh, really, uh, I point really, is to emphasise the importance of having a surveillance authority to deal with a number of areas which it's really quite difficult to see are suitable either for individual or probably state-to-state -state, uh, um, dispute resolution. Particularly example I have is state aid, which we know is a European Union red line for any deep and comprehensive free trade agreement. It really is quite hard to see that either state to state or individual dispute resolution will work there. You are going to have to have some form of enforcement authority to do the detailed sort of work that needs to be done to bring a state aid case. Okay, so let's just pick up those ones very quickly. Catherine, just to slightly turn around Robert's question, quite interested, do other member states find the ECJ sort of over-mighty, a bit objectionable, or is this a peculiarly British problem with the ECJ? I'll let Holger explain what the, the German courts yeah. think of the ECJ. I would like to just talk, um, I would just like to talk, a, a, a directly answer your question, which is it's a bit of a mystery to me quite why the ECJ is such a red line unless you see it entirely through the prism of sovereignty and that if taking back control means taking back control of all the institutions, then by definition, no control by the ECJ. Um, but uh, David Edwards, the British judge at the Court of Justice, wrote it, or was interviewed in The Guardian, and he says, lots, he blames the fact that lots of people confuse the Court of Justice with the Court of Human Rights. Court of Human Rights deeply unpopular in this country because of the prisoner voting rights decision and also some of the decisions connected with um, uh, deportation of foreign terrorists. ECJ does not do any of that, but they've all got an E in the title, and so there's much confusion. There's a wonderful Bart Simpson cartoon, which is doing the rounds, which says repeatedly, you know, as he writes on the board, the Court of Justice, not the Court of Human Rights. The trouble is, that, that, that pass has been sold. But what is not understood is that, um, as we've heard, there is a, a trade-off. And until the trade-off is articulated much more clearly to the public, the deep and special trading relationship will need someone to set the rules of the game and to ensure that the rules of the game are arbitrated upon. And so there will need to be some supranational body, and thus taking back control, by definition, will be partial. Now, we already concede that through um, the WTO and the WTO panel system. There are all sorts of other supranational bodies that we give deference to. I'm trying to avoid the, the sovereignty word. But the fact is that if we're going for a deep partnership, there will need to be somebody who acts as a ref referee in some form. And actually, although the ECJ has got a bad reputation in this country, it is worth bearing in mind that the ECJ did find in favour of the UK in respect of the problem about uh, the banking clearances and derivatives market. The ECJ has been a strong proponent in developing single market in services and trying to remove some of the intractable barriers there. In answer to your final question, has the ECJ listened? Yes, but too late for the UK. Classic example of the ECJ showing it has listened is a decision in Dano, which was about uh, benefits. And basically in Dano, the court turned the entire previous 15 years of case law on its head and said, if you are poor 
and you move, in that case from Romania to Germany, and you turn around and promptly ask for benefits, the court said in Dano, no, you can't have them. You've got to be resident in Germany under one of the pre-existing categories, um, and only then can you start asking for benefits, which you shouldn't be entitled to anyway, because you should have had sufficient resources in the first place. Too little, too late, but the court is listening. But. Oh, God, just on the sort of German attitude yeah, to the court, then so the, the Sorrentz Authority. The main reputation of the... the a lot of people would still go back to the two cases in the 60s establishing mm. supremacy and direct effect. Mm. That is where the ECJ gets its reputation as an, a very activist court from. But that was both of them in the 60s. The German objection came mostly from fundamental rights. The German Constitutional Court has fought a long mm. battle with the European Court of Justice saying uh, we will only abstain from controlling EU acts mm. if the EU sufficiently protects fundamental rights. Now, that was a driver mm. for the fundamental rights to flow into EU mm. law. The, e, the mm. court then discovered, so it reacted, it discovered fundamental rights in general principles. Mm. Now we have the charter. And now we see, much to the surprise of mm. some, uh, the same in reverse. So uh, the Court of Justice had to rule, when does the charter apply in member state actions? Mm. When does it bind member mm. states? Because the wording is vague, and I would impress that mm. upon the audience. The court is doing a regular court's job. Every court in the world does that job. Mm. It had to interpret contradictory, unclear language. It interpreted for the taste of the mm. German constitutional mm. court too broadly. Mm. And the German constitutional court, in, with no need to have a paragraph on that judgment in one of its decisions, put in interpretation of the ECJ's judgments mm. into one of its mm. decisions, saying, yes, we don't think the European court quite meant what it said. Mm. We think it, said it meant this, because the other thing would be illegal. So th this history exists in other countries too. Italy currently is fighting a battle over VAT. The difference, I think, in mentality is all other countries have a written constitution and judicial review. And the idea of a court checking German laws is ingrained in our constitutional tradition since the Second World War. The idea of parliamentary sovereignty mm. is peculiar to the UK. And I think that could explain some of the difference why um, resistance to the Court of Justice is stronger in the UK than it is mm. in the I think, Robert, you'll, you'll remember that, you know, as a civil servant, the number of times you had to go to a minister and say, we've just lost another case and it's going to cost you this. I mean, the sort of winds are the benefits dispersed among the sort of private sector of you get access for this, you get access to that. The losses are extremely acute that there was... I mean, when I was in the Ch uh, Chief Secretary's office, we seemed to lose a court, a case a week at the European Court, which was always costing, mainly on, under the Equal Treatment Directive, which forced us to align loads and loads of benefits. So I think it's that acuteness of, you know, but I don't want to spend money on that, I want to do it on this, that I think maybe account for a bit of the British attitude. Can we do this, Holger, without a surveillance authority? Is that sort of an essential part, the sort of point George was raising, about a free trade agreement? So, so again, to the can. It, I, I think the WTO, for example, yeah. proclaims itself to be a member-driven yeah. organization, no yeah. surveillance. But the more integration you have, the more rules you have, the more it will be difficult not to have a neutral oversight mechanism. Mm -hmm. And it depends very much on what the UK in the end wants and, and what the EU wants. If the UK says, we're happy mm -hmm. to have a deal like CETA, mm -hmm. a normal mm -hmm. free trade deal, which is not very, mm -hmm. which is a large step back, mm -hmm. to say the least, mm -hmm. 
then an, over, an oversight mechanism could be mm. dispensed with. If we want deep integration and uh, frictionless mm. trade, an oversight mechanism is very likely needed. Okay, does anyone want to comment on whether we should just sort of basically be members of the EEA and stop all this fussing around and designing well, bespoke I, things? I think one, one of the things I would like to say in that regard yeah. is uh, there's a lot of uh, talk about a transitional deal. Um, if we want to provide interim security mm. for industry, mm. industry needs to know that quickly. If we provide interim security two days before Brexit Day, uh, then business has already made all of its plans. So we need it quickly, and the only thing we can get quickly is something off the shelf. And if we want to negotiate things in detail, it will take time. Okay, Blue Peter rules again. Okay, we're just going to take... Uh, final questions. If anyone's got a question that they absolutely want to ask before we go, uh, there, Alex, Harry, back there. Yes, there. Yeah. Um, Tony Bellis from 3M. Uh, Catherine was very clear at the outset about the uh, implications for the EU agencies uh, with, e with ECJ, but can she please comment on? Uh, SEN and Senelec and other standard, EU standard-setting bodies and the implications there for ECJ. Okay, that's quite technical. Yes? Uh, Alex Bradley from Biz. It was just a follow-up yeah. question for something Holger mentioned. So we know that um, citizens and businesses can enforce their rights um, afforded to them by the EU and the EEA, but not other less deep and special free trade agreements. Uh, you mentioned in passing that you don't think a future EU-UK agreement would be enforceable in member state courts. Um, and I just wanted to pick up on that and see if the panel had any divergent opinions. Okay, yep. Phil. Um, I, I think the role of precedence in the European Court of Justice is really important and might help us to get to a solution. Mm. And so I was wondering about the role of precedence in the European Court of Justice because when I used to tell ministers, I used to say they didn't have much role of precedence because it's an aspiration. It's the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law. And I think that's where part of the problem comes because you can usually expect guess what the answer from the House of Lords is say. You couldn't. You never used to be able to with the European Court of Justice. And I think it's more about, if you like, the political role in what is the aspiration of the treaties, which is why you've got a situation where people in exact different countries have different laws exactly the same situation at the moment and then not and it's perfectly legal. Okay, I'm very keen that we get last words for the whatever. So what I'm going to do is get all our panellists to pick up uh, any of those questions that they can. I'm going to give Raphael the chance to say where he's moved to as a result of this conversation. So Michael James, let's start with you. Um, <clears throat> your question, I think, was about the deep and special partnership agreement. Uh, I didn't hear it quite fully. You, you were asking, I think, uh, what it, where that is on a, on a scale as to whether you need a surveillance mm -hmm. body and, and a court. Well, I think, well, it's not directly applicable in national yeah. courts in 
Oh, whether there's direct effect? Yes. Right. Oh, that, that's a very specific question then. Right. Um, I'm going to leave that talk if you want. Well, in that case, uh, I mean, I, I'll only talk about the EEA agreement here. Um, now, there, there is no direct effect of the EEA agreement um, per se, but the, the, there are various bits and pieces that look quite similar. <laughs> and so once... Um, secondary legislation has been incorporated into a domestic legal setting, uh, then there is an obligation of result to ensure that that uh, secondary legislation uh, is taken, is, has effect, essentially. But that's not quite direct effect in the EU setting. Yeah, so uh, quickly, as a matter of, uh, of EU law with a parallel of WTO law. So WTO law as a matter mm. of EU law, when it mm. flows into EU law, does not have direct mm. effect. One of the arguments being it doesn't have direct effect in the other partners. It doesn't have mm. direct effect in US law. This agreement would not have direct effect in the UK. Accordingly, mm. it's very likely that the EU would argue mm. the same as if with... If the UK would wrote, write direct effect into legislation... Well, yeah, but if we translate it into legislation, that's precisely the normal procedure. Mm. The EU would do the same. Mm. It would translate it into legislation. There wouldn't be direct mm. effect. So, um, and then mm. precedent, I, I think, there is no legal precedent. The, the ECJ works on a precedent system. Quite clearly, it copies from its old decisions mm. extensively. If it wants to depart from old decisions, it changes the formation, and it bumps it up to a higher formation in terms mm. of the number of judges sitting. Um, what makes it less predictable than national courts is not the lack of precedent. It is the fact that it's a more complex legal system uh, so that when you move in the UK system, you know what the UK mm. does. You can base yourself on the experience of that, on administrative experience. In the EU, you have to take into account that experiences differ all over the EU. So from a UK standpoint, you know, in, any, in a case that is brought in mm. Estonia, can have a surprising outcome because we are not aware of particular problems arising there. Maybe it's just that our legal advice never understood enough the way in which legal decisions were made within the EU, and that's why we badly advise ministers on whether they were likely to win or not. Just a thought. Anyway, um, I'm keen someone picks up this point about standards and how standards <coughs> apply. I'm not sure whether which of you two is best placed to do standards? 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 So I'm, I'm not an expert on, on EU standards, but I'm, as far as I know, they're not under ECJ jurisdiction, but I, 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 that's going far off the track here. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I think they're mostly even non-binding in terms of yeah. the standards they issue. So. Yeah, I'm afraid I'm, I'm not... <clears throat> I, I don't want to give you an uh, absolute categorical answer. It's not my area of uh, specialism, but my understanding is SEN and SENELEC, they're essentially private bodies, therefore they don't fall under the jurisdiction of the Court of Justice under Article 263 because they're not identified as such. But clearly their decisions on mm -hmm. standards and standard equivalents become have legal effect through, um, for example, the Toy mm. Safety Directive. But if you would like to know more, I'm happy to do some digging for you. On the point about precedence, um, the, um, basically the Court of Justice, while not formally bound by doctrine mm. of precedent, largely does follow its earlier decisions, but there are some notable exceptions. And in those notable exceptions, sometimes they are not the best decisions, the best reasoned decision of the Court mm. of Justice. Um, and so they sort of, uh, the court does sometimes dance around the fact that it has basically disregarded quite an earlier um, 
uh, disregarding an earlier decision of, the, of uh, usually a chamber um, rather than the, the, the full court. Nevertheless, broadly, in the, the, the mainstream cases, it will apply something which looks rather like a doctrine of precedent. Okay. Raphael, you've listened very patiently <laughs> to all this Q&A, but you started off by framing the conversation, so where does this take us? Yeah, well, I, I think, uh, I mean, particularly on this question of uh, direct effect, which comes up at the end, I think it's just uh, important to remember the, the sort of tree of bifurcations uh, in the way that both sides are addressing things. So, I mean, it, it would surprise me, although I may be wrong, uh, if the UK government were prepared to give a free trade agreement with anybody, uh, including the EU, direct effect in UK law, given mm. that that's not normally what we do. Uh, then again, uh, as far as the EU is concerned, although the UK government isn't always uh, entirely happy with this division of things, the future partnership, the free trade agreement, is a different matter from the withdrawal agreement. Mm -hmm. right? uh, so you could imagine a situation uh, in which the UK government attempted to write into legislation some kind of direct effect-like provision mirroring bits mm -hmm. of the European Communities Act 1972 uh, in order to satisfy the EU with respect to EU law-related provisions, which one imagines the withdrawal agreement will have more of, uh, given that that's going to do things like attempt to preserve citizens' rights as they currently stand uh, under EU law. So I think the thing for us to think about is how these different mechanisms uh, can apply to different agreements and different bits of different agreements. Okay, well, that's a good place to end. Uh, thank you all very much for all your questions, for listening so diligently and uh, for shedding so much light through your questions on these issues. I'm sure we will return to them again. And I think the general point that it's sort of quite interesting to know uh, some of the rationale behind some of the decisions and actually to see what sort of assessment has been made on what we lose as well as what we gain are actually quite important, not just on this issue, but on a lot of the decisions that have been made on the nature of our withdrawal more generally. But could I ask before you go just to thank all our uh, panellists for their contributions. Thank you all very much.